We are continuing in Habakkuk um, this morning and all along the way that we've been talking in Habakkuk, we've been talking about justice. Um, and what we're really talking about when we say justice, it's really um, people getting what they deserve for their actions. Um, Habakkuk wanted justice for the Israelites um, who had fallen away and were taking over the courts. Me for a minute. For the Israelites who had fallen away from God's law and had taken over the courts, were taking advantage of those less fortunate with them than them. Um, and God told him, right, in his question about that at the very beginning, justice is coming, and it's coming through the Babylonians, who were an evil and violent people. And they were making their way west um, towards uh, Judah and Israel, kind of conquering nations as they came. And then when Habakkuk heard that, he wasn't really a big fan of that news of the Babylonians being used by God to judge Israel. And so then his issue was, well, they deserve justice and they should get what they deserve and they should be taken care of before us. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to see God's response to Habakkuk's second question of like, how can you use the Babylonians to do this? That doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. And so the next two weeks, we're going to see the response to that. Um, and wanting justice for others isn't really wrong, right? We do want justice. We do want things to be fair. We do want things to be right. The problem is um, we stand among those who need justice. None of us is perfect. None of us are right. We all end up at some point hurting other people or doing something against somebody else. So we're actually in the same boat as the Israelites, as the Babylonians. We need justice just like them. So the question I think you might ask is, well, then how do we avoid that, right? Because the Israelites are being judged. They're going to be conquered by another nation, and we, I don't think any of us is signing up for that. Um, and then we'll see today the Babylonians are also going to get their turn, and God's going to say they're going to be judged too, um, and they're really not going to exist anymore. Um, and so I don't think we're signing up for that one either. And so how do we avoid being judged in this same way? How do we be, avoid being counted among the rebels? Is there hope? Is there a chance for us? And even if you're here this morning and you think you know the answer to that and you think, well, I know how to avoid that. I already know the answer. Um, that's fine. But you might want to know, what do the sides of both of those things look like? The side of the people experiencing judgment and then the side of those being counted okay in God's eyes. What do their lives look like? And does my life look like that? And what do I do if there are things in my life that look like the side I don't want to be on? Like, what do I do about that? How do I respond to that? How do I change that? How do I become right in God's eyes? What do I do then? And so that's the answer we're looking for today. How can we avoid being counted in opposition to God? And what does that look like in our lives? And we're going to look at this one verse at a time. Usually we read the whole thing all together, um, but it's only four verses, and I kind of like the way it builds on each other. So I'm not actually going to read it all um, up front, um, but we will be in Habakkuk chapter 2. Um, it's page 833. If you're looking at the Pew Bible in front of you, you can also follow along um, through our app or through the YouVersion Bible app. Um, the scripture will be right there. Um, but we're going to look at this in two parts. The first is um, the message of justice that God gives to Habakkuk, and then the results that come from that message. And so we're going to start in verse 2 um, with the message of justice. Verse 2 says this, The Lord answered me, Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets, so one may easily read it. 
So first, we see this is good news. God answered Habakkuk. If you remember the end of last week, we saw Habakkuk say, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to wait until God answers me. And we have this picture of him on the watchtower, like he's looking for an enemy, looking and waiting for God's answer. So this is good news that God did answer him. And we aren't sure. It doesn't tell us how long it took or how long Habakkuk had to wait for this answer. But God did answer So this is a reminder that we too can have confidence that God will answer our questions and our prayers. He is listening and he will answer. Now, it may not be the answer that we wanted or that we were looking for, and it may not be in the time frame that we're looking for, but he will answer us. And so next, he tells Habakkuk to write down this message for others, right? Make it clear so it can be easily read. And so, depending on the version of the Bible that you're reading this morning, yours may not say, um, so one may easily read it. It may say something like, so that he who reads it may run, or if you have NIV, it says that a herald may run with it, all right? So that's three different versions. Those sound like three very different things. Um, But I think the concept that he's trying to get us to see here is very important, and there are some debates on this translation. Right? Does it mean that he is supposed to write this message and then people are going to run and deliver it to others? He writes it on tablets and it's like the delivery service, right? Old school post office and biblical times. They just run and they take it to everybody and then everybody reads it. Or does it mean that he needs to write it big enough that people can read it and announce it as they're running through the city? This is more like a guy who's announcing the news, but he's not doing it from a desk. He's doing it as he's running through the city. And so it needs to be big enough that he can read it while he's running. Or does it mean that it needs to be big enough for passersby to read it easily as they walked through the city? Think about this as, we don't do this as much anymore, but when you used to walk into a city, there would be like a a long line of just kind of proclamations and information that you need to know about the city. So is he saying, hey, we're going to write this big so when people come into the city, they'll read this and they'll know? Well, I'm not actually sure that it's any of those, Um, but I think it means it should be written so that anyone can read it, and they can read it easily, that they can understand it easily, and they can be able to pass it on. So regardless of the semantics or the word choice and the order, I think what's implied here is this is a message that needs to be passed on. It's not just for Habakkuk. Obviously, because we're reading it this morning, they effectively did their job because we are still reading it um, thousands of years later. And so the word for read is the same word for herald, which is why it's translated that way um, in a couple of uh, translations. So a herald is basically the guy who stands up in a tower and he announces the news to the whole city. So that's what a herald did in these times. And so basically what I think it means is If you've heard this message, you're a herald, right? If you've heard it, it's your responsibility to tell other people about it, right? This is a message to be told. So everyone who reads or everyone who hears this message should consider themselves a herald of this message and pass on to people everywhere, right? It's God's intention that this message is passed on by those who read it. It's because the message we're going to hear this morning transcends this moment in the book of Habakkuk. And this is, we're going to get to a verse later, and it's actually very significant in the history of Christianity. But I think that in in itself is an important reminder about God's Word, right? God's Word isn't actually just for us to listen to. 
or it isn't just for us to read. It's always to move us to action, right? Whether it's reading or listening to it, or it's a Bible study, or it's a sermon this morning, right? If I preach it correctly the way I'm supposed to, it isn't just for you to listen to me and gather some new information. The point is that we would live differently or act differently or think differently as a result of hearing and coming in contact with God's Word, right? And this concept of applying it and passing it on was central from the beginning. If you go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, uh, God gives the, the Israelites at that time kind of this command, and it's one they actually recited every day. And part of it was this, right? Repeat these commands to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. And I think the, the call for us is the same, right? Let's talk about God's word. Let's talk about God's message. Let's talk about what you're learning, what God is doing in your life. What are your successes? Where are you struggling? Where are you seeing God working in your life? And we talk about things, those things when we're sitting, when we're walking, at night when we're lying down, in the morning when we wake up, whether we're at home or we're at work or we're at church, wherever we are, we talk about those things. That's what it means to pass on this message wherever we go. And so part of hearing this this morning, so if you're in the room or you're watching online or you're watching this you know, 10 days or a month from now because we posted it online, your response is you're supposed to pass on this message. So that's the challenge to us this morning. And so let's kind of work through what this message is. So let's look at verse 3. It says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end, and it will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Right? God tells Habakkuk, this message will be fulfilled. It will come at the appointed time, which once again reinforces God's sovereignty. We've kind of seen that all along in the book of Habakkuk, that God is sovereign, and if he wants to use Babylon to do something, he can do it, because he is in control, he is powerful, he is able to use Babylon however he wants, right? God's not just like putting some posters up on the wall with like dates and nations, and then he throws darts at them, and he says, okay, it's going to be the Babylonians in 586 B.C., Let's just put that one out there, and if it happens, great. And if it doesn't, we'll just throw some more darts and see if it works out. No, God isn't just throwing darts and hoping everything works out. He is certain that it will come to pass. What God says is going to happen will happen. Then we have this part that says it testifies about the end, and it will not lie. This, this prophecy pointed toward a future goal, that there was an end. Um, and this, this, this phrase about it will not lie or going towards the end, um, carries on a sort of a, a, the idea of, the, it's literally, it pants toward the end. So think about this like a runner toward the finish line. If you watched any of the Olympics over the last two weeks, you've seen this at some point. Somebody struggled, struggling, striving, giving everything they can to cross the finish line or finish their event or do whatever it takes. And so they're panting, they're breathing hard. I was watching one race, I don't remember which one it was, and a guy, like, as soon as he crossed the finish line, he just fell down, right? As soon as he crossed, and he was just breathing hard, and he was excited and all of these things because he won a medal. Um, but that's the idea that he's talking about when he says, this message, this thing that I'm about to do will come to an end. It's not like it's like casually strolling through the park. 
right? Eventually we'll get there and eventually it'll all happen. No, he's saying it is panting towards the end. It is striving towards the end. There is a force, there is a power, there is a determination behind what God is doing, behind what he is saying. It is moving forward. But the question you might be asking is, well, then what is the end, right? If the end is coming and it's coming quickly and it's coming forcefully, what is the end? Now, I think actually for this one, there are three ends. Um, just because of the situation and where we're at, um, sometimes scripture speaks very specifically about one thing. I think this one is a little more open-ended. And so we have three. The first one is where we started the book, right? Habakkuk saying, how long will you let Israel get away with this? Well, Israel and specifically the Judah, which we're talking about, will be judged. The Babylonians will come and conquer them. And that's going to happen in about 586. And so that's about 20 years from, we think about 20 years. We don't know for sure when Habakkuk was around, but about 20 years from this. So that's the end of Judah. What God says is going to happen to them will happen. Then we have the end of for Babylon, which God is going to talk about in the rest of this chapter 2, about what's going to happen to them, and we're like thousands of years ahead, so I don't think I can really give you spoilers at this point, um, but they're also going to end, and that happens about 539, so about 65 years from this moment, um, the Babylonians will cease to exist, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about how that happens later, actually. But then there's a third part, right, and I think that's the part that we are actually still waiting for which is kind of the conclusion of redemptive history. When Jesus comes back and he takes all of the saints with him and things are restored and they're made the way that they're supposed to be and there will be justice, no matter what side you're on, there will be justice for you. You will get what you deserve. So that's what we are still waiting for, right? So even though we've been waiting and since Jesus came, that's 2,000 years. We've been waiting 2,000 years for this. And every day we think today could be the day. But it won't be late. And it will certainly come. But the challenge, I think, for us, or at least for me sometimes, is the longer we wait for him to return, the less urgent it feels. Right? Because he didn't come back for 2,000 years. What if it's another 2,000 years? We're not in any hurry to do anything. I'm not in a hurry to pass on this message. I've got all the time in the world. Right? We could have 2,000 years to do this. But I want to challenge us that to not let waiting for God's return lull you into thinking it isn't coming or to thinking you have more time. The challenge is it's coming and it could be any time and it certainly will come. So the challenge for us is to overcome kind of the sense of just like, oh, we have a lot of time and move forward and do what this is calling us to do, to be heralds, to spread the message that is coming to us. And so that's the message that we need to spread, that the end is coming, justice is coming, things will be done. And so next we're going to see actually the result of justice, what's going to happen as a result of this message. And we'll see this in the other parts And so we see that the Israelites are experiencing God's justice. They are getting what they deserve based on God's call and God's commands. The Babylonians will experience God's justice. They will get what they deserve based on violating God's standards and his commands. We will also experience God's justice. 
and we will get what we deserve based on violating God's standards and commands unless there's another way. There's a way to avoid that. There's a way to be found okay in God's eyes. And so we're going to start in verse 4. Um, and I'm going to read that one, and then we'll read verse 5 in a second. But this is, this is the, the bulk of the message that we're here this morning, and it's really only two verses, but there's a ton here. Um, I actually felt like I could do like three or four sermons on just these four verses because there's so much here. But verse 4, it says, Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. And so we see two different paths. We see two different responses here, which Habakkuk contrasts against each other. First, we have the proud, we have the arrogant, we have the self-sufficient. This is talking about the Babylonians, but I think we can use this to see principles in our own lives or in the world around us that help us to identify with them. And so we have, first, we have the proud or the arrogant, right? He calls them puffed up. If you've read um, scripture thoroughly or read through the Bible, you've heard this phrase puffed up before. It means um, proud, arrogant. The, the actual term is bloated. Somebody said like a tumor, right? Like a tumor that grows inside of you. And this image is used throughout scripture, but I actually want us to picture using the word inflated. Because when I think of inflated, what I usually think of is a balloon. is inflated and it floats around. We see these all the time. But think about how easy it is to pop a balloon, right? Any tiny pin or anything sharp and it comes in contact with the balloon, and it's done. It's over. It's destroyed. There's a loud noise. It's, everything falls apart. The tiniest thing can ruin everything. So if you're proud, or you're arrogant, or you're self-reliant, you're just like the balloon. You're puffed up. You're inflated, which means the tiniest thing can throw you off. The tiniest thing can ruin everything. A phone call, a decision at your job, something that happens in your family, some accident that occurs, the tiniest thing and everything comes crumbling down. Because when everything depends on you, when you're relying on yourself, there's a ton of pressure. There's a ton of weight on you and the tiniest thing can throw you off. Because you're trying to control everything and move everything the way you think it should go. Right? And so there's pressure in being proud and arrogant. He also calls them not upright. And we're going to come back to that one and contrast it with what we see later. But then if we pair this with verse 5, we see more characteristics of the proud and arrogant person. It says, Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and like death, he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself, and he collects all the peoples for himself. Now, this is talking about the Babylonians and what they're doing, but I think we can easily apply this to ourselves. And first, he talks about wine betraying. Um, and I'm not going to go very far into this. I think we all know if you drink too much wine or you drink too much alcohol or whatever it is, it kind of betrays you, and bad things tend to happen when you start doing that. Um, just for fun, we're going to actually talk about the end of the Babylonians. And so if you want to read about the end of the Babylonians and how quickly it happened, you can look at Daniel chapter 5. And so in Daniel chapter 5, there's kind of a lot going on, but the basics is um, the leader of the Babylonians at that time throws a big party. 
and they all get drunk in the party. And at the end of the party, their enemy shows up and kills the leader of the Babylonians, and that's it. That's the end. This great nation that we're going to see, and they lasted for a long time, but they end in a moment because of wine, right? In that one thing, it portrays. And so I think God is kind of saying, look, this is what's going to happen, and it's, it's not going to be funny, but it's going to be a little ironic when we get to it, that this is the thing that brings Babylon down. But then he talks about an arrogant man is never at rest, right? For the Babylonians, there was always more to conquer, there was always more to overcome. There were more opportunities to prove how great they were. And for us, it's similar. There's always more to do. There's more to clean. There's more work to do. There's more conversations to have. There's more to prove. And if we do this out of our pride and arrogance, it never ends. It just keeps going because you're trying to prove how good you are or how great you are or how smart you are or how capable you are or how you're a better mother or grandmother or father or child than anybody else. You're trying to prove all of those things to, and you're working to prove that or to validate or to confirm who you think you are or sometimes even who you think you're supposed to be, right? I'm supposed to be this person, so I'm supposed to do these things, so you just work towards those, but the question for us in this is, can you rest if the proud and arrogant person can never rest? Can you rest? Can you stop? Can you take a break? Right? Without thinking about all the things you feel like you need to do, can you, for 10 minutes, <clears throat> for an hour, for a day, rest? and not think about them, and not worry about them, and not try to prove anything, and not try to live up to anybody else's standards, can you just rest? I think if you can't, or you find it really, really hard to do, it's a sign you're relying on yourself, and not relying on God, and resting in Him, which is what we're going to come back to in a minute. And then he says, the arrogant or proud person is never satisfied, like death. Right? He uses this example of death. No matter how many people die, death still wants more. Right? We're thousands and thousands of years later at this point. Death is still collecting people. Right? Every day we see that all around us. He never has enough. He always wants more. It's never ending and never satisfied. In the same way, the Babylonians were never satisfied. They conquered a nation, but it wasn't enough. They gained riches, but it wasn't enough. And so they just kept going and going and going and going. Now, I don't think it's too hard to see that our culture fits this description. We aren't satisfied. We always think things can be better, or we want more. If you just like look at the magazines at the grocery store when you're checking out, it's pretty obvious that we are not a satisfied people, right? There's all these headlines, 10 steps to a better you, Right? Or better cooking, or better health, or a better body, or better finances, or a better life. Right? All of those things imply things should be better. You should be better. You shouldn't be satisfied with where you are. And I think there's two ways actually to look at this concept. Because I think the fact that things should be better, or we feel like things should be better, is actually pointing to something within us that is missing. 
right? When things aren't quite good enough or we hit a ceiling, right? It feels like, hey, this is as good as it's going to get, but I feel like there's another level out there, but I just can't quite get there. Whether that's in your marriage or at your job or with your relationships or whatever it may be, you're just like, this is, feels like as far as I can go, but I think there's something else out there. Even if you're following God, I think you'll probably still feel this way. But in this life, things can only get so good. Right? I think this dissatisfaction that we feel in these moments, in these situations, is actually built within us to point us to God. To say there's something better out there, like keep looking, keep searching, what you're looking for does exist, but you just haven't found it yet. It's there. And, and the term I have for this, I'm calling holy discontent. Right? It's not always bad to feel unsatisfied. Right? I don't think it's always bad to think your marriage should be better, or your family should be better, or your church should be better, or you should be better. But if we understand that we are limited in this life, and on this side of heaven, I think we're probably always going to feel that way. Right? It should be better. There should be more. Like there's another level we just can't get to. And I think that's okay, um, based on what we're going to see in a minute. But then the question is, well, how do we know when that's gone too far? Right? That we aren't just having this holy discontent that things should be better, but they're not. <clears throat> but that I've drifted into pride and arrogance. And that's why I am unsatisfied. And so I think if your dissatisfaction comes from you saying, I'm not getting what I want, that would be too far. If nothing is good enough for you, that's probably too far. If you feel unfulfilled or lacking, no matter what the circumstance is, that may be the pride within you. And so the question for us is, <clears throat> are we satisfied? And if not, if you're not satisfied, is that born out of a holy discontent or is that dissatisfaction born out of arrogance? Right? And I get sometimes it's a blurry line. I'm with you. I understand. But I think that's something that we should look at because that's what Habakkuk is, and God is trying to get us to see. There's two sides. There's the prideful and the arrogant and the one who is trusting, which is where we get to next. Right? We have the first part, the arrogant, the proud, the self-sufficient, those who are opposed to God. But what's the opposite of that? Which is what I think we all really want to know. How do we end up on the other side? How do we stand in God's presence? How do we survive his judgment? And this is, I think, one of the, the beauties of Scripture, and you see this all over the place. In the middle of God's answer about justice and judgment, not just for Judah, not just for the Babylonians, but for everyone, he's going to hit everybody by the time he's done, that everybody's going to experience his justice. There's always a little hope that he throws in there just for us. And in, here we have just this one line, right? The righteous one will live by his faith. And this verse, I think, is the center of the book of Habakkuk. It gives hope in the midst of judgment. It tells us how to endure hard times, even if your hard times is being conquered by an evil nation. If that's what you're up against, you can still have hope. It shows us the difference between the arrogant 
the self-reliant, the self-exalting Babylonians, and those who would trust fully in God for deliverance and salvation. And this verse is a big deal in Habakkuk. I think it's the center of the book. But that's not all this verse is. And one thing that I've heard kind of over and over is people ask me kind of what we're preaching through, or even when I told you guys, what I hear often is, oh, I've never heard a sermon series from Habakkuk, right? Oh, I've never heard that. Nobody's ever done that. I've never heard one of these. <clears throat> and so what you're actually missing by probably skipping Habakkuk, well, you might read it in your Bible reading plan because it's like three chapters and it takes you 10 minutes, right? But if you don't have a sermon series or you don't think about this or look at it, you miss this verse. And this verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans chapter 1, it's quoted in Galatians chapter 3, and it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And it's used a little bit differently every time, but it has the same idea of, of persevering. Um, in Hebrews, it's about persevering in persecution. Um, and, but what we're going to focus on this morning is actually the quotation from Romans chapter 1. And I believe it's 117. I didn't write it down. If you look, you, it'll be really pretty easy to find. <clears throat> because this verse, the righteous will live by faith, actually Paul uses basically as his outline for the book of Romans. And I think if you have been a believer any amount of time, you know the book of Romans is significant in the life of Christianity. In addition to that, this verse quoted in Romans is what Martin Luther read and discovered that righteousness comes through faith, not works. So tucked in the middle of this tiny book of Habakkuk, in the middle of a harsh reality about God's judgment is hope, a verse of truth, a verse that is not only the center of Habakkuk, but also the center of the book of Romans, and also the center of the Reformation, which is why this morning we're not all Catholic, if you didn't know that's what the Reformation was all about. So the fact that we are a Baptist church, or you can be a Bible church, or whatever else, anything that's Protestant, is because of this verse, which I could argue is the center of Christianity. Right? The righteous will live by faith. And you may be listening to me and you, th you may be saying, I think he's really overselling this verse, right? It doesn't seem that significant. It's just like six or seven words in the middle of this book, right? It can't be that important. But I think if we understand this, then we can understand and thrive as Christians. And so when I realized this this week and kind of put all the pieces together, um, actually went kind of to see more about what happened with Luther and what he was doing when he read this. And I ran into, actually, um, R.C. Sproul talk about Luther's discovery. And it was really good, but I'm, I, I wanted to share it with you, but I'm not going to just read you like five minutes of somebody else talking. Um, I told somebody else I would, but only if I could sound like R.C. Sproul, um, which I can't. Um, and so that's a different story. Um, so just know much of what you're going to hear in this section coming after them is from him. It's from R.C. Sproul. I'm either going to quote him or kind of summarize what he's talking about because I think it helps us understand the significance of what is in this verse and it helps us understand the answer to the question that we're asking is, how can I be found right in God's eyes? And so 
righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And that's the verse in Romans. That's the whole thing together. Right? And, and Sproul says this is a verse taken from the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament that's cited three times in the New Testament. We already covered that. And as Luther read it, he would stop short and he would say, what does this mean? That there's this thing, this, this righteousness that is by faith and from faith to faith. What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? And so the lights began to come on for Luther and he began to understand what Paul was speaking about here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available to those who would receive it passively, not those who would achieve it actively. But we would receive it by faith and by which a person could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. And so in this time, most people were working off of the Latin translation of Scripture. And based on the way these words were used and interpreted, um, when they read this verse, they thought that meant that God made people righteous through the sacraments of the church, right? If I attend church, if I confess my sins, if I get baptized, if I do all of these things, then I earn righteousness, God makes me righteous, and it's an earning kind of thing. But Luther began to look at the Greek word, not the Latin translation, and he realized the word doesn't really mean to make you righteous or to earn righteous, but to count as righteous, to declare righteous. And he realized that Paul was talking about a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have a righteousness of their own. Right? That would be us. We are not righteous by ourselves. We cannot be righteous. We cannot be perfect. We cannot be without sin. And so Luther realized the righteousness by which he would be saved wasn't his I love the term that he used for this. He called it alien righteousness, right? A righteousness that belongs to somebody else, that is outside of him, that is outside of us, right? And that righteousness was the righteousness of Christ given to us as we have faith in him for what he did on the cross for us. Our faith in his sacrifice, his substitution for us, that's what causes us to be counted as righteous. That's what it means to live by faith, right? Not live by works, not do all of these things, not check off everything on the list, but to have faith in what Christ has done for you. Because it's not our righteousness. It comes from outside of us. It is given to us. We are declared righteous through our faith. That's the answer to the question. Right? How can I be considered right in God's eyes? How can I avoid the judgment that all these other people are going to experience? It's through faith. Faith in Christ and what he has done for us so that we can be counted righteousness. It's not ours. It's not earned. It is given freely to us by his grace. That's what's buried in the middle of Habakkuk. And it changed Habakkuk, 
and it changed Romans and Paul, and it changed Luther, which changed the way the church is organized, which changes us. And so I think if you can understand just the simple phrase, the righteous live by faith, and what it looks like to live by faith, it actually changes everything about the Christian life. So this verse, I think, is significant. And so the question you may ask, because we've been talking about what does it look like if you're proud and if you're arrogant and so you're puffed up and you're inflated and you're not satisfied and you never rest, but what does it look like to live by faith? What does the opposite side look like? And I'm, I'm not going to give you like 10 steps to live by faith because that would not be right, the opposite of what I'm trying to tell you we should do. But I think there's three things that we can do that show that we are living by faith. It's to repent and to rely, and to rest. So the first is to repent. If you realize when you look at your life, or you go home and you think about the sermon, or you think about kind of how you're doing, or what you're looking, or, man, I'm really not satisfied, and I can't rest, and I'm trying to do all these things on my own, and I'm trying to bring about my own outcomes, and I get frustrated when things fall apart so easily. Or you're trying to earn your righteousness or say, if I do all of these things, then God will love me. If you're trying to do all of those things on your own, repent. Turn around. Choose Christ. Rest in him. Right? Whether that's for the first time, whether you're listening to this and you've never trusted in Christ and you never believed that he sacrificed himself on the cross for your sins, to cover the payment so that you could be declared righteous, so that you could be counted righteous. If you've never done that before, then do it for the first time. Or maybe you're already a believer, and it's the millionth time that you recognize you're doing the same thing. It's still the same thing. Repent. Turn around. Not just say, I don't want to do that anymore, but to turn around and actively say, I choose Christ. I want to follow him. I want to love him. I want to trust in him. I want to live for him. So we repent, and then we rely. Right? The opposite of relying on yourself is relying on someone else. And for us, that's relying on Christ and his righteousness that is given to you by grace through faith. The whole point of, of this section of Habakkuk is saying, hey, this is what it looks like to live by faith. And next week, we're actually going to get to like five warnings of, again, what hey, this is what not to do. Don't do these five things either. Right? You can't save yourself. You can't be counted right in God's eyes on your own. You can't do enough good things. You can't balance the scales. It's not possible. You will always feel unfulfilled. You will always feel unsatisfied. But through faith, you can be fulfilled. You can be made righteous. You can be found, counted okay with God in his eyes when you stand before him. And lastly, it is to rest. To rest. To really rest. Right? Not just to rest for 10 minutes and say, oh, I'm going to pause and I know I have this list of things and so I'm going to wait for 10 minutes and then I'm going to do everything just faster after that 10 minutes so I get it done. That's not actually resting that's more like pausing, right? But to actually rest. And the, the concept that the Bible has for this is Sabbath, 
right? A resting, and all throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament all the way through to the New, Sabbath is actually about trusting in God, of realizing, I don't have enough energy, I don't have enough strength, I don't have enough resources, but it's okay. It's okay that I don't, and I can rest, right? Whether it's a whole day, which is what Sabbath talks about in the Old Testament, whether it's an hour, whether it's 10 minutes, you can rest because God's got it covered. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be anxious. You don't have to be concerned about all the things that may not get done. You can rest because Christ has it covered. And that, I think, for us in our day and age is one of the hardest things to do is just to actually rest and believe I can do nothing for a day, and it's going to be okay, right? That's really hard for most of us. We can rest and trust that God will provide. He will take care of us, because as we've seen all throughout Habakkuk, he is powerful. He is sovereign. He brings about his purpose. His message will be fulfilled. So whatever he says he's going to do, he will do. It will be fulfilled and we can rest in him as we trust in him by grace through faith. We guys pray with me this morning. God, we come before you this morning and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the gift that you give us of, 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 of a tiny verse in the middle of a book that we don't really pay much attention to, but it's, it becomes the center of of almost all that you do, the center of, uh, of Christianity, the center of Romans, the center of a great movement like the Reformation. But God, the challenge for us is to actually do what it's saying, right? To live by faith, to trust in you, to rely on you, to rest in you. And if that wasn't difficult enough for us, you also reminded us at the beginning that if you've heard this message, it's not just your responsibility to live it out, but it's also your responsibility to tell other people about it. Which is a whole other thing that brings fear and anxiety and feelings of inadequacy in all of us. So in all of those things, trusting in you, living by faith, not taking matters into our own hands, sharing this message of hope and faith that you would work in all of us, that you would give us all strength, <clears throat> that you give us all faith, that you give us all boldness and courage and whatever it is we may need to live like that because that's what you've called us to. So God, help us to live by faith, to trust in you and follow wherever you lead us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.